when I look at even just around Charlottesville at the, the different faces, the different languages that children speak in our schools, I see a different America. I see an America that has real hope to just be a little bit more tolerant and embracing of difference and appreciate that that can be our strength and not our weakness. And, and that's something that I just don't hear enough of among people older than me. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Since The Great Battlefield recently joined the Democracy Group of Podcasts, I've been learning about some of the other shows in that group. A good one is called Democracy in Danger, from the Deliberative Media Lab, part of the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia. My guest today is Siva Vaidyanathan, one of the hosts of that podcast. He is professor of modern media studies at that university. One of his books is Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. I asked Siva about his life and career path and how he came to be so concerned about our democracy and particularly its relationship to the internet. Siva has a very interesting story. You should listen and check out the Democracy in Danger podcast as well. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Siva Vaidyanathan. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Siva, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. I'm Siva Vadianathan. I'm a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. Uh, I'm the author of a number of books, most recently, Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, moved to Austin, Texas for college when I was 18 and stayed there for 14 years and worked as a reporter, did graduate school there, and then headed off into the migrant workforce that is academia. (laughs) What kind of reporting? Where did you work for that? Yeah, I worked at a number of daily newspapers in Texas in the 1990s. I worked at the Dallas Morning News and the Austin American Statesman and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I covered a lot of state politics and state government in those jobs. And then I also did some crime reporting, some court reporting, some feature writing. So all kinds of stuff, the stuff that uh, entry-level people tend to do. What did you like and not like about that career? Why did you decide? Okay, so in the early 1990s, we had a uh, sort of preliminary collapse of the newspaper industry. It wasn't quite what we've experienced in the last 15 years in this century, but it was pretty severe. What what had happened was a, a lot of investors had bought up newspapers and merged them or just plain closed them. I sold them off for parts. And so we saw a lot of cities around the country go from two newspapers to one, including a number of cities in Texas. So Dallas went from two to one and Houston went from two to one and San Antonio went from two to one. I I was like in my early twenties and I had only a couple of years experience. There were all of a sudden all these people with five to 10 or more years experience unemployed, willing to do my job for the same money. So there really weren't advancement opportunities, you know, and the job itself was getting really brutal. You know, like uh, what we called the news hole was getting smaller as advertising went down during a recession. So that meant our stories had to be shorter, had to be simpler, had to be less in depth, less meaty and just less useful to our readers, basically. And that was frustrating to me. I, I wanted to tell deep stories and get it deeply into issues. 
I really wanted to serve democracy as, you know, those of us who grew up in the wake of Watergate had learned to believe we could uh, as reporters. Uh, and, and it just was deeply frustrating. It, it just didn't seem to be designed to serve democracy. You know, and so I was looking around for something else to do. I was looking around for a way to actually contribute, to to write things in depth, to write, you know, a book. I, I, I figured I wanted to write a book, and I went looking for a way to learn to write books. And so that's what drove me to graduate school. And your PhD is in American studies. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I did my PhD at the University of Texas, where I also did my undergraduate work and where I lived as a reporter. The American Studies Department there and American Studies in general, you know, embraces interdisciplinary research. And my department there especially appreciated clear writing for a broad audience. And so the training was actually pretty ideal. You know, my professors insisted that my dissertation take the form of a uh, book manuscript and, and that I call it my book all the way through graduate school, not my dissertation. My professors made it a point to introduce me to editors and get conversations going about what it took to write a book. So it was really ideal training for the track I ended up in as a scholar. Did you run into uh, Professor Tulis during that yeah, time? Yeah, Jeff Tulis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I had him on the show earlier because when I was a, a PhD student, I had read his book on the rhetorical presidency and it left a mark on me. And then I talked to him about democracy and stuff more recently. Seemed like a really good guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What was the dissertation that or book that you worked on? Yeah, so, and this was the 1990s. And, uh, and I had a lot of questions about music and the relationship between music and the law. I had been an early hip-hop fan, but also a jazz fan, blues fan, rock fan, and I was paying a lot of attention to the sort of modes of creativity that involved speaking to a tradition and within a tradition. And that meant, of course, referring to the familiar. So, you know, a lot of blues songs will have references to, you know, older blues songs, making a clear chain of influence. And the same thing was happening in hip hop, just in a more ornate and explicit way with digital sampling, where hip hop artists would take, you know, sections of songs and loop them in to create a rhythm track. And it would often be a very familiar song, an R&B song or rock and roll song. And they were doing it in this really bold and creative way. But of course, they were doing it without permission. And so, you know, we started to see a lot of lawsuits pop up in the early 90s. Lawsuits from older musicians, many of whom had retired and hadn't actually written a decent song in 20 years, suing these new artists who were just trying to create a new sound and use the detritus of the culture left around them. I thought this is a really fascinating story uh, between the old and the new, the established and the insurgent. And, all, and through it, there is this field of law called copyright law that is mediating these tensions. And I wanted to know how well does it mediate these tensions? Does copyright law, as it was given to these artists in the 90s, uh, aiding in the practice of creativity, or was it in fact inhibiting creativity? And I came to the conclusion that it was largely inhibiting creativity. It was raising the cost of production and the cost of composing, and uh, and it was doing so in a in a very racialized field, right, where where judges were expected to essentially make judgments about the artistic benefits and artistic contribution of young black men. These judges were generally old white men, and they were not very sympathetic. So I started looking at that, and that made me think I would like to understand the history of American copyright law, and I would like to read a cultural history of American copyright law. I think it had a lot to do with the development of American democracy and the development of American literature, film and television, stage, as well as music. And, and so I went looking for that book, and I couldn't find it. And I said, well, then if I can't find it and I want to read it, I should probably write it. I decided that would be my first book and thus my dissertation. So I put together a committee and included some law professors, included some historians, some music scholars, some American studies scholars, some literature scholars. And I went about trying to piece together this story of American copyright from a cultural perspective. 
And I just had the time of my life. I mean, I found so many cool things about early, the early film industry, the way that D.W. Griffith had basically created copyright law for film out of nothing, uh, out of practice. He and his lawyer got together and basically made up the whole thing, just like they, you know, in many ways, Griffith made up the, the practice of narrative filmmaking. He made up the whole idea of how film should be handled by copyright law. And that was something I think was unknown, largely to film scholars, but also to copyright scholars. The work took me right up through, you know, two live crew and all of these amazing works of the 90s of early hip hop. You know, the Beastie Boys uh, with Paul's Boutique or Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. I mean, these were really dense collections of samples that were highly creative and yet um, could not be made today uh, because of the ways that courts have cracked down on unauthorized sampling. So, you know, I, I thought I had a really cool story that went from colonial times that basically earlier than that, from the 1600s and in, in the in England, all the way through the 1990s. And what I was just wrapping up as my dissertation was finishing in the late 90s was this digital explosion. What was going to happen when everybody had these amazing digital copy machines on their desks and they were all networked and could share files like what was that going to do to copyright? So I finished off the dissertation, not tackling that question, but decided the book, when the book comes out, it would have to tackle this digital moment. And so that drove me into understanding what it means to digitize sound, what it means to digitize video, what it means to, uh, to have things travel over networks. That brought me into a whole bunch of media studies uh, uh, work that I had never been exposed to and, and science and technology studies. Uh, it, it made me understand software and hardware. I got really into open source software. So I became a total nerd on all these things at the very moment that the whole world was getting fascinated by digital technology. Before I know it, you know, here I had written like a whole chapter on Mark Twain and American copyright. And I thought of myself as a very grounded historian of American culture uh, where my focus was on the late 19th and early 20th centuries in many ways, even though my interest had come from what was then the present. And before I knew it, I was a digital scholar because there were no other digital scholars. I mean, there was barely a sense of internet studies by the year 2000 when I was just beginning my career. There were a handful of us, maybe 20, you know, around the country, all recently out of graduate school, all trying to figure out how to study the internet. Somehow we found each other and started trading stories and resources and methods. And, and yes, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty wild ride for more than oh, now, almost 25 years trying to make sense of, of the digital. I mean, it strikes me as really good fortune as well as obviously like an apt choice to pick something where you're having the time of your life, writing things like a dissertation. I don't think, that's true for the majority of people tackling it, I think, to be envied, um, to have it open up. And also just being at the right place at the right time when change is occurring and, you know, being there for it. I mean, it's I got so lucky, you know, that this opportunity was there, that I had the right committee. It was the moment in time when I could forge early work in an area where nobody older than me was doing this kind of work. So nobody could tell me I was doing it wrong. And it happened at a time when there was the opening of a demand of, of a market for this kind of work. So when I went on the job market, uh, I thought I was going to be a historian, maybe in an English department with a stretch. And what I found was that library and information studies was very interested in me and communication and media studies were interested in me. Law schools were interested in me. Like I had so many more scholarly communities than I ever thought because they were so fascinated by copyright. And of course, copyright turned me into a digital scholar, and that brought me in any uh, number of directions within just a few years. That's awesome. Your book, The Googleization of Everything, comes a number of years later, 2011. What's the story of that one? So uh, in between Copyrights and Copywrongs, which was my first book, and The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry, which came out in 2011, I published a book called The Anarchist in the Library. And that came out in 2004, and I was trying to make sense of what I saw as two very competing models of our information ecosystem. 
One was anarchistic, this notion that sort of the hacker ethic, right? The idea that we should radically democratize access to information, distribution of information, anything goes, no sense of structure or values Im imposed upon it. And there's virtue to that. And then what I saw is the oligarchic model, what you might see from Disney or, you know, CNN, right? This notion that there will be this top-down broadcast model that these companies were trying to impose on the internet. And I saw that as an unfortunate tension because I saw neither of those models being really healthy for a democratic republic. And so what I wanted to argue for was a different model for how our information ecosystem should develop in the 21st century. And I used the library as my model. The library is free enough, but it's not everything or anything goes. A library is professionally curated by people with a strong sense of ethics and civic duty. And, and libraries are meant to, to convey an aura of, of small R republicanism, participatory, informed, enlightened discourse with dependable information. Of course, we've gone in, you know, no direction close to what I had prescribed. You know, if anything, we still fluctuate between the anarchistic and the oligarchic. What I saw rise in those very same years uh, is Google as a mediator of these two models, right? Google actually stepped into the fray and said, hey, here's this young company. We're going to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. That's their slogan. That's actually their corporate motto. And I said, well, who asked you guys, right? You're a bunch of grad school dropouts about my age. Like, what authority do you have to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible? And I was talking to a lot of librarians in those days, and they were very nervous about Google, not, you know, because Google was necessarily doing anything wrong, but because in many ways, Google was doing a lot of things right. And, and giving the illusion that Google was the last word, that Google's rankings, algorithmic rankings were the last word on what is true and good. And they said, you know, this is a flattening of the information world and a commercialization of the information world. And when Google started scanning in all the books from the University of Michigan library, and then soon hundreds of other libraries around the country, actually around the world, librarians were worried because they had long thought that creating a global digital uh, archive accessible through libraries was a brilliant idea. And we had the technology. We just didn't have the political will to do it in a way that would be universally accessible, but also reasonably designed and, and ethically designed. And here was Google, this big, rich corporation coming along and doing it. And leaders of universities and libraries were saying, yes, Google, please do our work for us, even though you have no librarians working for you. It was a really weird moment. And I said, you know, I need to make sense of this company. This is a company that had, when I started writing about them in 2004, thinking about writing about them in 2004, you know, they were only six years old. I want to figure out how we became so dependent on them so quickly and so, so intimately. What was the deal between Google and us? Like, what are we giving Google in exchange for this amazing service? So that really launched me on that. That book came out later than I wanted it to. Ended up coming out in 2011. But it came out in some ways a little too early because the world turned its critical eye toward Google a couple of years after the book came out. But I was lucky enough to have been sort of an early warning on the increasing power of Google in our lives. Uh, what I didn't do well or right in that book is I didn't take YouTube seriously, and I didn't take what would become the Android operating system that seriously. They were sort of afterthoughts in that book. I stayed focused on the web search function of Google and didn't really think about the pretty significant changes that the move to mobile would have and the, 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 the prevalence of YouTube in our lives. Well, I think they do say the future is one of the most difficult things to predict. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So I got that wrong. <laughs> uh, and I, if I had a do-over, I would write like three or four more chapters. But uh, who has time for that? <laughs> you seem to get a lot written. What was the intellectual property book that came a few years later? Oxford University Press has this series called Very Short Introductions. And since I had been teaching undergraduate classes on intellectual property for a number of years, they asked me to write up, you know, this very short book 
based on my lecture notes. And I thought it would be easy and quick, and it turned out to be actually quite difficult. It's difficult to distill a semester's worth of lectures into something readable. And it took me a couple of years to do it. And it's really meant for undergraduate classes or just the interested adults. You know, it walks through the major areas of intellectual property, copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets. It's very clear on the distinctions among those areas of law. Uh, tries to highlight some recent controversies to liven it all up. I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. It is not yet dated, which is, you know, always my struggle whenever I write about anything. It was one of those things I wanted I wanted to do just to sort of get my work out there again and remind people that I was an intellectual property scholar at one point as I had moved into more Internet-based uh, material. On this uh, show, I've interviewed at least three, maybe four former Facebook public policy politics people after they left and chatted with them about the challenges as they saw them in sometimes being a political consultant to campaigns while selling them advertising and, and sometimes doing that in an imbalanced way because of the different ways that the Trump and Hillary campaign worked, for instance, but also campaigns at other levels. And it used to be in politics and technology, we looked on Facebook for a few years as like a positive thing, but it really flipped with 2016. At what point did you start writing a book about Facebook and democracy? Tell me about like that. That's that's your next book. Tell me about how, how you get going on that and what you say. Unsurprisingly, it was around November 20th, 2016. I decided to write that book. So <laughs> I'd barely given myself uh, a week to breathe um, uh, after uh, after the surprising results of November 10th. Maybe it was November 8th. I, don't, I actually don't remember. Fortunately, I don't remember too well which date it was. Um, uh, it took, kind of hit us the the in the early of the next morning. I remember my I, I, my wife was holding out hope and I, I had given it up. So. I mean, I had a 10-year-old <laughs> daughter and we had convinced her that she was going to get to grow up her teenage years with a woman in the White House. And it was heartbreaking to have to break the news to her the next day. She actually thought I was lying to her. She thought I was like messing around with her because we were all so sure. And and uh, I had to explain to her that while we sort of live in a democracy, the Electoral College doesn't actually represent the will of the people. And Trump somehow won the Electoral College. And it was perplexing. It's hard to imagine that she could ever really be patriotic after that moment. But we were all staggered by it. Yeah. 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 But, you know, at the same time, I had a pretty good idea of how Trump pulled it off. And I think a lot of people had missed this because the standard methods of political reporting right up through 2016 focused on things like what they call the ground game, like who is spending what on getting volunteers out and staff out into particular states and getting their signs up and knocking on doors, but also the air game, which is television and radio. And you can track campaign spending on television and radio. And so we saw all these stories in the last month of the campaign that, oh my gosh, Hillary Clinton is up like on the air in Arizona and in Texas. Oh my gosh, Arizona and Texas are in play. And this just went to uh, certify the boldness and the, the extent to which this was likely to be a landslide for Hillary Clinton. And again, that was easy to trace. And it's what campaign reporters had been doing since the 70s. Uh, but what they were missing was Facebook. I had a friend who had been an editor for uh, for Esquire for many years, and he decided he wanted to do a more useful job after that election, a more substantial uh, job. He, he didn't feel like the magazine world was going to let him contribute the way he wanted to. And he was sort of driving around the country, talking to old friends, including me, about what to do, what kind of organizations, what kind of expressions, journalism we could do in response to Trump. And he was visiting Charlottesville and and he, you know, he was saying, I just don't understand how Trump came out of nowhere and won Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida. And I said, well, I know how he did it. He did it through Facebook. And I said, like, Facebook has this thing called lookalike audiences where you can take basically a spreadsheet full of email addresses and upload them to Facebook as part of their advertising program. And if you upload a thousand emails, which you might gather at a rally, right? You have a rally in Tallahassee, you, you upload a spreadsheet of a thousand emails, maybe 10,000 if it's a big rally, and you can create a set of potential targets for advertisements 
that reflect the interests and profiles of those very people you uploaded. So lookalikes, like clones of you, like doppelgangers of you. And this is incredibly valuable in marketing. And what a lot of the people covering Trump had not realized, and remember, nobody wanted to work with Trump. Like no established Republicans wanted to work with Trump after he got the nomination. Everyone was sure he would lose. No one wanted to be tainted by his scandals and his racism. So they were all turning away. The only professional he could hire was Paul Manafort, who hadn't worked in Republican campaigns since 1996. The only other people working with Trump were those who had worked for the Trump organization, which was basically a Facebook marketing you know, platform. They sold their junk through Facebook for years. So they knew how to work Facebook. That's all they knew. They didn't really know how to do anything else in a campaign. You know, their Facebook team and they had other social media presence, right? Trump himself was on Twitter, but the campaign really focused on Facebook. They knew how to use lookalike audiences. They knew how to do A-B testing of ads. They knew how to segment audiences into tranches of even a thousand voters and either motivate them or demotivate them to do something. And so throughout South Florida, they could identify voting age men of Haitian descent. Uh, there might be 10,000 of them in a list and send them messages reminding them Bill Clinton went to Haiti after the after the last big hurricane. Or I'm sorry, after the last big earthquake and and promised to fix the place. And it's still a disaster and you can't trust the Clintons. And, you know, if you send it to 10,000 Haitian men who might already be a little bit cynical about a woman being president, you can get maybe a thousand of them to stay home, if not vote for Trump, probably just stay home. And you do enough of those thousands across Florida and you can win Florida. And Trump won Florida by 110,000 votes. <laughs> you know, if you combine the three states that ended up flipping the Electoral College, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, we're talking about 78,000 votes across those three states. The University of Michigan football stadium holds 110,000, right? So basically, you know, more people go to a University of Michigan football game than decided the next president of the United States. And that's just stunning. And you can only do that with that sort of surgical precision that Facebook offers you. And it's still a, it's still a, a, a crapshoot, right? You, you might not demotivate the voters you want. You might not motivate the voters you want, but you do it enough times, you got a chance and everything just worked out Trump's way for that reason and a hundred other reasons. So I would never argue that Facebook is a reason that Trump became president, but it's a reason. And Trump's campaign agrees. You know, it was a reason. It was their best tool for raising money, for filling their rallies with supporters, for expanding their base, for bringing in voters who had never voted before, for flipping Democrats who had just always voted for Democrats and maybe had a reason that they suspected Hillary Clinton wouldn't be great. You know, just enough that they were able to pull people out. Uh, single issue voters. That subtlety and precision of Facebook was something that was lost because we're used to looking at campaigns as mass media, as, you know, you put up an advertisement in Dallas and you expect that Dallas voters will all see this ad and and some great middle of them will find it appealing and will vote accordingly. And that's, you know, usually a huge, huge waste of money. Uh, and remember, Trump is really cheap and, and Facebook was super efficient. It's the best way not to waste money on advertising. So I was telling my friend this story and he immediately said, you need to write this book. And what was really interesting about that moment is for years, I had been tracking how Facebook had worked in electoral politics in India, where just two years earlier, Narendra Modi had won an overwhelming election and completely changed Indian politics. And he had used Facebook largely to do that. I had looked the spring of 2016 and seen how Rodrigo Duterte had used Facebook to great reward in the Philippines. And so I had already seen that sort of work. It had been important in the Brexit election in June of 2016. You know, I already had a theory of the case, and it was one that you know, where clearly Facebook appeals to authoritarian leaders because you can do this kind of below radar manipulation and really stir up passions and prejudices as Duterte did, as Modi did, as the Brexit campaign did, as Trump did. And, you know, it's just super powerful if you don't like people and you don't like democracy. It's the best possible tool. Now, of course, Facebook didn't really think of itself that way. Facebook thought it was creating a better way to sell socks 
and sweaters uh, and a better way for us to connect with our baby pictures and our puppy pictures from our friends and cousins and everything. Right. Which is the good stuff about Facebook. That's all why we all joined Facebook. No one at Facebook thought for a moment about the worst case scenario, about the ways it could be abused and hijacked. And so I wanted to tell that story and I wanted it to be beyond the American story. I didn't want to just retell the story of the 2016 election. And I also wanted to get to the point where it, it had to be about more than the propaganda and the lies that were spread on Facebook. It really had to be about the ways that the constant use of Facebook structures our social lives and thus our political lives in ways that phrase our attention and phrase our connection and, and makes it just harder to think of oneself as a citizen of the polis. And that I think is the biggest lesson I had in the book. I, I'm afraid that that's been lost in our public discussions, which are so much about whatever fake news means these days. Obviously, there's a lot of other complaints, which you sort of referenced about social media and just its effect on the toxic polarization and mis- and disinformation. Where do you think we are now? What do you think has happened since? And what would you say differently, perhaps, with a, with a four more years of looking at it? I mean, I know that Facebook hired a team of people to take a lot of these issues seriously. And one of the things that Facebook found quite quickly is that its breadth, its size makes it impossible to govern effectively. So while they did a whole lot of interventions that they can boast about for the 2018 midterms and the 2020 general election in the United States, and they did similar interventions with the last two German elections, the last two French elections, they have done nothing effective to make the democratic situation better in India or Brazil or the Philippines, or especially in a place like Myanmar, where genocide is carried out through Facebook. And I think a lot of our public attention, too much of our public attention, has been focused on the American political story and not enough on the places in the world where Facebook actually matters more in people's lives you know, in places like Myanmar, Facebook is the only internet service people use. It's true in Sri Lanka. It's true in most of Pakistan, especially when you get out of the cities. It's increasingly true in the Philippines. It's increasingly true in Vietnam. It's increasingly true in Cambodia. And these are really troubled places where, you know, if you're living your life through Facebook and the people in Northern California at Facebook's headquarters are not paying attention to what sorts of material is flowing across and getting a lot of clicks, all sorts of terrible things can happen. And I, so I would say that Facebook sort of took these problems seriously, but they did so in order to head off criticism, in order to have a better story to tell when they appeared before the U.S. Congress or the British Parliament. And they didn't really take people's lives into account. So I think the problem with Facebook is Facebook. I think it's a fundamental design flaw in the very idea of Facebook. I just don't think Facebook's compatible with democracy as designed, regardless of what specific content flows across it. How do you find yourself at the University of Virginia? What was the kind of career path that oh, yeah. takes you there? And what do you do? I had started my career mostly at NYU, at New York University. Uh, I went there after graduate school uh, and, you know, really loved New York. Didn't really love working at NYU. It's a, it's kind of a mean place. It's mean to students. It's mean to faculty. It's mean to staff. It's not a very warm and endearing place. It's very mercenary. And, you know, but I was doing all right. And then, you know, I had a kid and <laughs> and I thought someday she might want her own bedroom. And that became increasingly impossible in New York. And it was clear that NYU was not in a position to help me or didn't wasn't interested in helping me house my child. You know, I got a strong signal from the administration there that I should test my worthiness on the market, which I had never done before. And it turned out I got really great offers from a variety of institutions around the country, much to my surprise, and I think much to NYU's de uh, uh, demise. And so I, I happily took off to Charlottesville, Virginia to raise my kid. And my wife and I both have been quite happy here. Uh, ever since we've been able to build to build a life and a couple of careers here in uh, in ways that uh, that we we couldn't have quite afforded in New York for reasons beyond bedrooms and real estate. We've been able to um, immerse ourselves in an intellectual community that works at a different pace. That's a lot more cohesive, 
this is a university that appreciates interdisciplinary work. This is a university that deeply values its students, especially its undergraduates. And so going to work actually kind of feels good, you know, which I think a lot of academics thought they were getting into and didn't necessarily get uh, as a reward for their work. But, you know, when I see the the optimism and energy of my undergraduate students, it can it can lift me out of any sort of funk. I've been super pleased with uh, with the opportunities I've had here at UVA. What's the Center for Media and Citizenship? It's an attempt to do media production in a pretty creative way. And over time, I've had a number of experiments that have you know, come and gone. I ran a uh, public affairs television program for a couple of years. I produced a podcast out of the center for a couple of years. It still hosts uh, an award-winning magazine, the Virginia Quarterly Review, which is uh, coming up on 100 years old and is just an amazing collection of reporting from around the world and poetry and fiction uh, and photography and art illustrations. It's something we're really proud of here at UVA. So uh, it's kind of like I'm a publisher and executive producer. And it's it's in lieu of having a production curriculum and wing at, at UVA. We don't have anything like that. We don't have a journalism school or a journalism major, but we do what we can within these other limits. And so whenever I can raise money to do something cool, you know, we'll do something cool. It's kind of improvisational, but uh, it's been working. I was introduced to your work by a kind of a network of podcasts called Democracy Works, which pointed me to a podcast called Democracy in Danger. What is that? Well, Democracy in Danger came out of COVID. <laughs> My co-host, Will Hitchcock, who's a historian, a really brilliant historian, he wrote a really important book about the the, the saga of post-World War II Europe and then uh, you know, a few other books. And then most recently, uh, a really important book about re-examining Dwight Eisenhower's administration. He was putting together a conference in the spring of 2020 about illiberalism and threats to democracy. And he's bringing in historians from around the country to talk about the, the historical roots of these threats to democracy. And he wanted me to participate in the conference and bring together some media scholars to talk about that side of the story. Uh, and of course, it all got shut down with COVID. We had this really great list of people who we were going to bring in for this conference to Charlottesville. So I said to Will, I said, you know what, why don't we have the same people uh, get on Zoom with us and we'll make a podcast out of it. And so I had some money through this, uh, what we call a democracy lab uh, that the College of Arts and Sciences had funded very generously. And I was able to hire a professional podcast producer, a guy named uh, Robert Armangal. And uh, he had worked on an NPR show and a podcast before. He had a PhD in anthropology. You know, he'd been a reporter. He's just this multi-talented person. And he was excited by this opportunity. So, you know, we started booking guests straight out of the agenda for that conference. Now, our first season was in many ways populated by the people who would have been at that conference. And, and one of our ideas was that we would use it for curriculum, we would actually encourage professors and maybe even high school teachers to use these podcasts in their classes because I mean, we're all scrambling for, you know, entertaining digital material in the days we all went online in 2020. So, you know, what we didn't realize is just how much Will and I would learn to depend on the conversations to even get through those dark times, to get through the Trump years, to get through the pandemic to get past the Italian elections, which were scary for a while. You know, we ended up just making some amazing friends with our guests who we have yet to meet in person. You know, we developed a framework for the show, a, a sort of an outline or model for the show that I, I think would, will serve us for many years. And we've seen our audience grow. Now it's like every episode's getting more than 3000 listens. It's, you know, it's not a big number, but I can tell you the quality is outstanding and they're not dropping off. And, most remarkably, they're listening till the end of the show, <laughs> which I think any podcast would be happy with. We've been able to talk through our stress and our anxiety with people who actually know what's up, know things in the world, have been through worse things than we have. You know, we, we talked to a man who escaped from the junta in, in Myanmar. We, we talked to people who have been imprisoned around the world. We've 
talk to people who, who struck blows for democracy in Serbia. Really inspirational people, as well as, you know, brilliant historians, brilliant sociologists, media scholars, journalism professors, journalists themselves. It's just been really uh, exciting and comforting to have these conversations. We decided to run a, a course called Democracy in Danger in January of 2021. And on the third day of class, our nation's capital was invaded by people hoping to overthrow the results of an election. And here we had 300 students all on Zoom, all basically experiencing that with us. And it was such a wrenching moment. And we got to talk through it as a group and and vent our 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 emotions and and then try to historicize it and try to make sense of it. Uh Will and I recorded an emergency episode that ended up being our biggest episode to date. He and I just talked about how we felt as we watched this stuff on CNN. And then and then we ended up having just the most satisfying teaching experience of our lives, even though it was on Zoom and we were in our own homes. Because the students were so open and so curious and so committed to trying to figure out how to save democracy in this country. And I wouldn't trade that opportunity for anything. So we were able to combine our passion for teaching with our our need to make this podcast work for us. And and I'm super proud of what we did. That does sound like useful and therapeutic, both. Glad you're doing something like that and have done. I mean, I have almost a slightly parallel stories. I started this interviewing people about the resistance to Trump just after spring of 2017 and have talked to three people a week ever since. And it's been people who are on the front lines of fighting that fight in various parts of the progressive ecosystem or nonpartisans that are studying or reporting on or working on reforms, just broadly working in the same fight. And there's so many times where I've just felt, you know, maybe even chills in the middle of a conversation with somebody. I kind of started out with this question about how much to worry about Trump. It wasn't clear to me personally, and it certainly didn't seem to be clear to me when I talked to, you know, a professor at Harvard in government. There was a consensus that we didn't know how dangerous he was. And and then there's that there's that series of books now comparing the patterns of authoritarians coming to power, starting with Mussolini or current ones like in, in Hungary. And Trump fits this pattern so well. My jaw is still dropping at this could happen to this country where I have also like immersed myself in its political history and care so much about it. It just doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem like like that playbook ought to work. And yet, you know, the title Democracy in Danger, I don't think it's in less danger now. It's still in in significant danger. Do you see it that way, too? Like, are you uh, as fearful as I am about it? Maybe more. Uh, but that's <laughs> largely because I, you know, I do tend to take a global view of this. And I see that democracy is in, in danger in Mexico, uh, where they have an authoritarian leader of the left, or he used to be of the left. It's hard to say. Um, you know, in Venezuela, with an authoritarian leader of the left, the in Nicaragua, where they have an authoritarian leader of the left, as well as Brazil, where they have an authoritarian leader of the right, hopefully not for too much longer. And so I see these places where, you know, when I was younger, I had great hopes. In the 1990s, it looks like Mexico was moving from a one-party state to a two-party state. The prospect of of more people enjoying a good life in Mexico was really exciting. I I, I saw as the war ended in Nicaragua that that there was a real embrace of democracy for a while, for a good 25 years. And that seems to have all gone away, right? We seem to be slipping from that high moment. And granted, I was in my 20s when the Berlin Wall fell, and and that was an important moment for me. I And I remember being stirred by the sight of people my age in Tiananmen Square. Uh, and so this has always been the story where I, you know, in my younger years, never imagining that parts of the world where people 
were so oppressed would ever be free. And then overnight they were free and our optimism was unbridled and probably unwarranted. And I, I think we didn't understand how fragile it would all be, even in this country, maybe especially in this country, we never understood how fragile it could be. We just took it for granted. You know, my kid never took it for granted. She doesn't have that luxury. She didn't get to experience that high point of, 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 you know, 1989 or 1991. She didn't get to experience when I was 10 in 1976, when, you know, we had an election in this country between a reasonably liberal person and a reasonably conservative person, both of whom were decent human beings. And they argued about the issues and the voters chose one over the other because that person offered a a particular vision of the country. And four years later, the party that lost made a better argument for their side and won back the country. And like when that's your formative political experience, you can say, well, democracy is not that my side wins. Democracy is that my side loses occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, but at least I know the game was fair. And I don't fear that the side that wins is going to undermine the system or rig the system. And we don't have that luxury anymore. My daughter will never have that assumption. My daughter was 10 when a confessed sexual predator became president by losing the popular vote, you know, and, and he was just so blatantly corrupt and never hit it. At the same time, let's remember that the threat to American democracy and, and the threat to a decent life has been unevenly distributed as so many things in America are. And so, you know, we can say, Oh my gosh, we made it through the Trump years, but a lot of us didn't, right? A lot of children got separated from their parents. A lot of people in Puerto Rico are still suffering because Trump's administration left them to die and left them with no support after a hurricane. A lot of people found that they've been disenfranchised because of the Trumpist efforts to limit access to the ballot, you know, and, and so I, I think my life is fine and your life might be fine. I hope it is, but I am deeply sensitive to those of us around us who, who, who find their lives not so fine. And it's not like this is over just because Trump's not president whether or not he tries to be president again, the, the the fight remains, right? The fight remains and the dangers lurk. And and it's clear that the Republican Party is the single greatest threat to democracy in this country. It is 100% at this point against democracy. And that's not something I say lightly, easily, or happily. And I never thought I would say that, but it is the truth. I think it's an exaggeration. It's only about 90 90- Six <laughs> percent. Every <laughs> once in a while, I will run into a Republican who does believe in democracy and does understand what Trump has done to that person's party as well as the country. I had lunch with two uh, co-workers, friends today, and one of them was telling me about eastern Washington state, which is kind of Trump country. Um, and he had looked up a, f- a, a woman he knew in high school on Facebook, as one does and then found her page uh, littered with uh, those posters of like Trump with an automatic weapon and QAnon stuff. And so he had to turn, turn away from it. There's something about that subset of the population that's attracted to him that seems similar to the people elsewhere in the world who are attracted to that kind of usually male uh, a, you know, a little bit violent or a lot violent potential self-assuredness calls to order the cards that Trump played that are seem to be helped by the the world you look at in Facebook elsewhere. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, they find each other through Facebook. They find each other through other social media platforms as well. It's just easier for them to find each other now. Those people have always been here, but they've been marginalized. And in many ways, they were marginalized by the Republican Party. What would you like to see happen that isn't happening? It's painful to think about, like the reforms not going through Congress. Let me think more structurally, right? I mean, more than legislatively, I'd like to see, see, I would like to see a really frank discussion about enfranchisement and disenfranchisement and, and, you know, cutting through the lies. I would like to see us just have to face the truth about who we let vote and who we encourage to vote and who we just dis, dis, disenfranchise through various means. 
So there's just no more. Nobody gets away with the BS anymore. Big fantasy. I would love to see a lot of people over 40 lose power. Like, I actually think that I actually think that the problems in the world right now are caused by people at least over 50, as I am, but definitely over 40. What I would love to see is my daughter and her friends be in charge of everything. They have a low tolerance for nonsense. Their lack of idealism is actually a great strength. I think we got fooled and floored by the fact that we once were taught to believe that we were okay and perhaps invulnerable. Young people have not always been, I mean, uh, I don't know, Gaddafi and Mussolini and people like that came to power very young and had support in the youth and support among violent people uh, in the streets that were young. I know what you're saying about, I mean, young people seem to be like one of the upsides of Trump. Like I always worried he was teaching people the wrong lessons and he taught a lot of people the wrong lessons, but he also was such a counter example for a lot of young people who, who have turned their backs on him for sure. Right. Right. Now, you know, I just think at this moment in this country, it's it's young people who have the best values and the best sense of what needs to be done, the best agenda. The day after the election, when my daughter, who was then, of course, 10, turned to us and said, um, do I have to worry about my friends who are immigrants? You know, it was like we we had to say yes. She had asked a series of other questions before that about, like, what damage could Trump do? And we lied to her by saying, you know, we have separation of powers and we have checks and balances and we have due process and we have policymaking systems in the government and we have courts and these are all going to put the brakes on Trump's worst instincts. And to some degree they did, but in many ways he ended up eroding confidence in all those institutions to the degree that even if he failed in the short term, he could succeed in the long term. But we were basically lying to her in that moment, just trying to get her to not fear to be able to sleep through the night. When she asked about her friends who were immigrants, we couldn't lie to her because we feared the worst. And I think we were uh, we were well justified to fear the worst. And when I look at even just around Charlottesville, at the the different faces, the different languages that children speak in our schools, I see a different America. I see an America that has real hope to just be a little bit more tolerant and embracing of difference and appreciate that that can be our strength and not our weakness. And and that's something that I just don't hear enough of among people older than me. And I guarantee you that varies tremendously by high school and location in the country. And you're going to see the opposite somewhere else. I mean, what worries me is that authoritarians learn from each other. And you see like DeSantis in Florida learning from Trump and learning from others around the world and getting ready to try to take power using some of the same methods. It's a scary time to realize we have to keep winning. I can't remember who it says, but the velociraptors have learned how to work the doorknobs. <laughs> yeah. You and I both have these conversations because it is so easy to lose a sense of hope and optimism and what I find is when I speak to a person who was imprisoned by Milosevic or a person who was tortured by the junta in Myanmar, I I can see that I have nothing to complain about. Like, maybe not nothing, but like, I got to keep it in perspective. You know, things are worse and have been worse elsewhere. And those people still believe this is a fight worth having. Those people still get up every day and do the best they can for the rest of us. And that's really inspiring. It's humbling, right? Who am I to whine when I've never put myself on the front lines? I've never stood up in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square. People are doing that right now. People are doing that. You know, it's like we can never forget that. People in Ukraine are putting their bodies on the line when they were, you know, when they were uh, used to be computer programmers or something. Absolutely. Right. And look, we might be having to be on the front lines to protect women's health in this country very soon. And and that's something we have to be willing to do. Right. It's funny because I I, I think often when I when I'm feeling really bad, I remember Trevor Noah's book about his mother, which is really, you know, it's really inspiring. 
because you know Trevor Noah's mother has endured hardships that that very few Americans have have had to being a a, a woman in South Africa married to a white man raising a, a a biracial kid and having to hide her marriage having to hide her child sometimes just never never giving up saying this is all worth it i have to do it and now noah's her son is speaking to the president of the united states <laughs> right yeah he is a very talented man i wonder if there's a question that i haven't asked you that i should have um boy i don't know well, look, you know, I, I actually look at American democracy as a really short story. I don't think we had anything close to a functional democracy in this country until 1965, the year before I was born. And in 1965, that's when we got the Voting Rights Act. And in 1965, that's when we got the Immigration Act that made it possible for my family to come here and be citizens. And let me live a good life in this country. Those two acts, I think, actually fulfilled, right? That deracialized the American immigration system, the question of who gets to be American. And the Voting Rights Act empowered Americans, almost all Americans of, of voting age, to finally participate as equal citizens. And what we've seen in just the last few years is that the Voting Rights Act has been undermined, maybe gutted. And that there are explicit efforts by the Republican Party to undo the immigration system and maybe even undo the 14th Amendment promise of of birthright citizenship. And that's actually on the table. Mike Pence wants to, that to happen. You know, so so I see democracy as being a year older than me and that it never got to grow old, as old as me, because I think in a lot of ways, American democracy stumbled in 2000 when the Supreme Court decided who would be our president over the will of the voters and fell flat in 2016 when the founders, in all their stupidity, had created a system. Well, they created it long ago, but you know we, 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 we stumbled on their mistake and once again had a president who was not elected by the people and yet who broke through every norm and many laws to exert his will. And I don't think we're a functional democracy now. I think we had a, a, a few good decades there, but I think we have an agenda for what it would take to get it back. I never think like when, you know, when, when Kavanaugh was going around talking to the senators about why he should be on the Supreme court and he convinced just enough of them that in, you know, the phrase was Roe versus Wade is settled law. And I'm like, you know what? Nothing settled law in this country. You know, my parents, my father has brown skin. My mother has white skin. They married in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1965, two years before Loving versus Virginia. Their marriage was not even legal in Arkansas. Had anyone challenged it, it would have been tossed out. Basically, their marriage was not legal till I was one year old. So even though I'm kind of old, I'm not that old. So I'm, I'm always aware of the fragility, uh, constantly aware of the fragility. And I just I, I, I hope that most of my fellow Americans are now aware of the fragility of American democracy. Well, I don't quite see it as starkly as uh, 1965. I think it had democratic elements in the beginning, even if women couldn't vote and, and nobody except property white men. But I think we have a nice story of expanding that not linearly, but over time, at least to 1965. I think you have to grade democracy on a bit of a scale going back in history because things used to be a lot worse before we had it. But I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I, I don't think there's a more important fight. And I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you who's doing your part of it. Um, so thanks for taking the time with me. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think we covered a lot. I think so, too. Well, thank you very much. That was Siva Vaidyanathan. Siva is at medialab.virginia.edu slash democracy in danger. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.